Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellen podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, when Jenna reached out earlier this week uh, to tell me she had COVID and asked if I could speak, I said I would if she promised to rest and take care of herself, because I'm glad to hear that she is doing that and feeling better. And then I thought how strangely fitting it was when she sent me the materials for this week, um, and I saw that it focused on this question of what do you need? Because I'm here because she wasn't afraid to ask for what she needed, and I wasn't afraid to say yes. And I just think that's such a beautiful embodiment of today's theme. So it is a joy and an honor to be here with you this morning. And I thought that I would start with making a general assumption, which usually is a terrible way to start, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because when I saw that theme for today is, what do you need? I assumed one thing that you all need is to know who this stranger is that's speaking to you this morning. So um, I thought I'd share a little bit about myself. If I look familiar to some of you, it's because me and my husband David have kind of visited a handful of times over the past months and have sat in the back row as we've been trying to find a community to belong to since I moved back from the Chicago area about a year ago. We've been looking for a place to call home and we've really enjoyed being here with you all. So um, I first found out about this church because I knew Jenna uh, through Wilshire Baptist Church, if you know of them up the road. We did the same residency program, pastoral residency program together, but um, I did it about a decade before her. Um, and in that decade, I bounced around and done a few different things, uh, including serving as a hospice chaplain here in Dallas, pastoring a church outside of Chicago for the past five years, and now, currently, uh, for about the past year, I've coordinated the Baptist House of Studies uh, at Perkins SMU, where I get to work with great people like Bryson and Marcel, so feel free to come up anytime and say hello. Um, my husband David and I live in Oak Cliff near the Kessler Theater, so if you like good music, feel free to come on up and we can go to the theater together. And the reason I'm kind of out of breath is because we are expecting our first child in just a couple of months, so please excuse if I feel a little out of breath. David works at UT Southwestern, Southwestern, delivering babies at Parkland, which is very convenient for me. Um, and I'll also give the disclaimer that he was on call last night at the hospital, so if he dozes off, it's okay. I'll forgive him for that. So, so that's just a little bit about me and us, and I share that in hopes of getting to know each of you a little bit better uh, as we continue to find our home here in this community. So thank you for having me, it is a joy and an honor to be with you. So, let's go ahead and set the stage for us to consider this question, what do you need? Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Job. Now, how many of you are familiar with the book of Job? Anyone? What do you know about the book of Job? You can speak up, I, sorry, I can't hear you, sir. He loses everything. A lot of really bad things happen to Job. And then it's a really long book of his friends telling him exactly that he probably did something wrong. And then God comes in at the end and goes on this whole tirade about how we don't understand anything. The end. It's a really good book. 
I highly recommend it. Now, before we get to the part of the story of Job that we'll be focusing on this morning, there's a couple of things to know about the book of Job. First, it's not a historical record or a prophetic warning. It's actually grouped with the poetic books of the Hebrew Bible, and we're invited to read Job more as a kind of a story, a fable, a parable, something along those lines that helps us question and consider the nature of God and the presence of suffering in God's creation. One translation of the book of Job even begins with a common construction that clues us into what kind of story we're about to read. It starts, once upon a time in the land of Uz, which might not even be a real place because there's no other record of a land called Uz and no other mention of it, so we could just as easily read it as the land of Oz or the land of us. So in this land of us or Oz or us, we're introduced to Job, a man who's described as the paragon of faith. He goes out of his way to do good and to be faithful. But right after briefly meeting Job, the story sweeps us away to a scene set in a divine kind of court, kind of a divine courtroom, where God and the different members of the court are going about their business. And this is where we meet a curious character. Which brings me to the second thing that you need to know about the book of Job. Because it's fascinating, and at least me as a nerd finds it fascinating, that in the midst of this series about important questions, let's focus on the importance of asking questions, we're given a scripture that's actually the result of a character whose job it was to ask questions. Though that is not how you have probably heard this character portrayed or described. Well, let me explain what I mean. You see, in this divine court, among all these members that are going about their business, we're told how Satan was among them. Now, what do you think of when you hear that name, Satan? What are some descriptors that you think of? Red horns, bad wings, scales, right. That name Satan might conjure up certain images for you, especially as we move into the Halloween season, something along the lines of a red-faced demon with horns and a tail, maybe holding a pitchfork, right? Uh, depending on how good your imagination is, maybe there's some scales and wings. But here's your Bible trivia for the day. Satan really isn't a name at all. And you can ask Bryson. He knows Hebrew, right? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> it's actually the title of a position within that heavenly court. In Hebrew, the word Satan always appears with a definite article. Ha, which means the, ha Satan, which means the Satan, and is better translated as the adversary or the prosecutor. So as such, ha Satan, or the prosecutor, is a member of the heavenly court whose job isn't to tempt or torment humans, as we might have been told, 
But rather, like any prosecutor, Ha Seitan's job is to ask tough questions, to uncover truth, which is exactly what we find him doing in this story of Job. After hearing a report of how Ha Seitan has been roaming around the world, God asks if they have noticed Job. God praises Job's virtues, but then Ha Seitan asks a tough question of God and lays out a curious case study for God to consider. How can you be sure Job doesn't revere you because of the blessings he enjoys? What would happen if he lost everything? What are the odds he would curse you to your face? These are the questions that not only set up what happens next in the story, they're also questions that are still very much alive in us today, right? Ones that we ask ourselves or should be asking ourselves. Do we worship God because we think it will benefit us here on earth? Do we follow Christ because we hope it will help us avoid pain or misfortune? Do we have fair weather faith or is our faith based on something more, a deeper, more covenantal relationship? Now, ultimately, Ha Seitan's questions lead us to consider our foundational understanding of God. Do we view God as rewarding good behavior and punishing bad, or is God something more than just a divine judge? And in the story of Job, Ha Seitan's questions lead God to either be convicted by or curious about what would happen so God seemingly allows all those bad things to happen to Job, to tragically test his faith, right? Not just once, but many times over and over. We hear how tragedy upon tragedy strike him, leaving him with nothing. His oxen and donkeys are stolen, his farm workers are murdered, his sheep are struck by lightning, his camels are carried off, which I don't know how you carry off camels, and his drivers are put to the sword. And if that wasn't enough, all ten of his children are killed when the house they were feasting in collapses. Here is a man who has lost everything. His life savings, his hopes for the future, his livelihood, his children, and line of succession. And we traditionally hold him up as a paragon of faith because destitute and heartbroken, he cries out to God, acknowledging the randomness of how things are given and taken away and ultimately blesses the name of the Holy One. Which prompts a second scene back to that divine court with the prosecutor among God's many court workers. It's almost a repeat of the first scene. God again holds up Job as the paragon of faith, especially now, given how Job didn't curse God, after losing everything. But Ha Satan extends the terms of the original challenge a bit with another provocative question. Who wouldn't give everything they have to spare their life? But take away his health and see what happens then. So here we go again. 
beyond the terrible emotional and psychological pain of losing one's children, livelihood, and hopes for a secure future, the prosecutor now adds actual physical pain to Job's trial, suggesting this would reveal his true colors. Now, on the surface, Ha Satan's question has to do with the motivation behind Job's faith, right? Does Job, does Job only revere God because he was prosperous and enjoyed good health? There's something more to that question. Ha Satan's question isn't just about Job's faithfulness to God. The flip side of that question is also about God's faithfulness to Job and by extension, really, to all of us. Because what if, what if Job's faith is revealed as fickle and entirely dependent on good fortune? What if, what if we get distracted or misplace our trust in things or people rather than in the one who created all things? What happens if, or more correctly, when, our trials, tragedies, or even prosperity get the better of us. The flip side of Ha Satan's question asks, what then? What would God do? If humanity proves unfaithful, would God still choose to be in a covenantal relationship with them, with us? Essentially, Satan is asking God, what do you need? What do you need from these creatures you created in your image, especially if and when things go sideways? And here we come to our scripture for today, where we find part of that answer in the second chapter of Job, verses 11 to 13. After Job has suffered the first trial and then has been struck, with an affliction that left his skin covered in painful sores. So in the second chapter of Job, we hear this. When three of Job's friends, Eliphaz of Taman, Bildad of Shua, and Zophar of Namath, heard of his misfortune, they set out from their homes and agreed to go together to console and comfort their friend. When they saw Job from a distance, they didn't recognize their disfigured friend. They wept loudly for him, tore their robes, and threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Then they sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him out of respect for his appalling grief. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. For a whole week, can you imagine? For a whole week, Job's friends sat with him without saying a word. From the very beginning from the poetic and proverbial seven days of creation, in the Jewish tradition, seven has been understood as a holy number of completion. 
So them sitting with Job for seven days means something. After hearing of their friend's troubles, Job's friends come from all of their hometowns to sit with him in the fullness of time. If you've ever heard of the Jewish practice of sitting Shiva, this is where that practice comes from. Sitting Shiva, which literally means sitting seven, is when the community comes to sit and mourn with a family for the whole week following the death of a loved one. And here it's important to lift up how, what a profound moment of comfort this is. Because sitting in silence is not an easy thing, right? It can feel awkward or uncomfortable because it exposes our vulnerabilities and it reveals our inadequacies. So we often rush to fill it, right? Or distract from it rather than settle into it and let it fill us. We have this tendency to mistake silence for an emptiness or an absence rather than enter into silence as a sanctuary that has the power to hold and to heal our broken hearts. Silence, when you are together in community, is neither emptiness nor is it an absence. It is a holy place where we are invited to meet God and one another in a much deeper way. Because silence stands in defiance of a world that's constantly on the move. It brings everything to a standstill. And it dares us to be present in the moment, to not look away. It welcomes us to feel the limits of our humanity and to become aware of the holiness that holds us beyond those limits. Now, as I said before, Job's friends will become a bit more problematic as the story goes on. But in this moment, in this moment when they sit with their, their friend, there's a profound sense of understanding and togetherness. They left the comfort of their own lives and fully entered into their friend's pain. They did it without being asked, and yet I can't help but believe that what they did was the answer to Ha Satan's implied question to God. What do you need from your human creations? While God isn't mentioned in this passage, I can't help but think that what prompted Job's friends to leave their homes and travel to be with their friend was a stirring of the spirit in their souls. Because what God needs is for us to be there for each other in those times of pain and suffering. To enter into each other's pain and the sacredness of silence together. To care for one another in times of tragedy and uncertainty. And yes, I know one might argue that if God didn't cause or at least allow all those tragic things to happen to Job, he wouldn't need the comfort of his friends to begin with, right? But this leads to the third and final thing that I'd like to suggest about the book of Job. 
similar to how it is not a historic record or prophetic warning, but rather a poetic parable, I don't think Job is so much a book about God's actions or inactions or motivations as it, a, as it is a book written by people like us, trying to figure out how to live in a world where suffering exists. It's a story about people like us wondering what to believe, what to do, and how to live in a world that is prone to unjust suffering and pain. It's about asking where God is and wondering who we are called to be in the midst of these storms. And these questions, again, are still very much alive and real for us. Because just like the people back then in Job's time, we believe the same thing, right? We tend to believe that the equation of the universe works something like this, right? Everyone knows the natural logic and balance of the universe should be that good things happen to people who do good, right? And bad things should happen to people who do bad or evil. It makes so much sense. That's how the universe should work, right? Everyone knows that. And yet, and yet, time and time again, we're faced with the reality that it isn't so. That equation doesn't work. Fires and floods, earthquakes, sickness, accidents, and acts of aggression happen time and time again. And the question becomes, what then? What do you need in those moments? What do you need in a world that often doesn't make sense? What do you need to rebalance? What do you, you who bear the very spark of the divine within your very being, what do you need to fan that spark into a flame? What do you need to release? What do you need to receive? What do you need to ask for? What do you need to give? Beloved of God, what is it that you need? What do you need from God? What do you need from each other? What do you need from someone else? What do you need from yourself? It is a good and brave practice to ask these questions of ourselves and of each other. Just as it is a good and holy practice to honestly answer them. So beloved of God, as I close, I pray that wherever you are on this journey, whatever role you're playing in someone else's story, whether you're in the midst of a storm, sitting in silence, or are somewhere in between, I pray that the Spirit stirs you to know what's needed in that moment. May she give you the strength to ask, the courage to answer, and the love to make it so.